This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Well, we are going to prepare for the preaching of God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 17. I'll tell you about this in a minute. We're going to switch it up, though, a little bit and go to John chapter 17. So would you please, please pray with me as we prepare to hear uh, what I hope is just some great encouragement from our Lord Jesus Christ and from his word. Let's pray together. God, as we turn our attention now to your word, we pray for ears to hear, eyes to see, and the illumination of the Holy Spirit that we might grow in faith and in our knowledge of you, knowledge that leads to everlasting life, knowing the everlasting one. We pray in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, folks, I can honestly say that I never thought we'd have a Palm Sunday, which is today, a Holy Week, which is what we call the week coming up, and an Easter Sunday, which is next Sunday, like the ones that we are experiencing. I thought that there could be, I don't know, a hundred reasons why I might not be together with you. I could get sick. I could be called away for emergency, a family emergency. I could be stuck traveling someplace. There could be any number of reasons that we all couldn't be together, but I never thought that there would be an Easter where none of us could gather together. I never thought that this room that I'm standing in right now would be empty on Easter Sunday. And let me tell you, the weight of that, even as I stand here now, recording this for you, is hitting me what it means. We already planned on jumping out of Nehemiah for a couple of weeks, but we thought it was appropriate that maybe we do that for a little longer during this extended stay-at-home time. And so as we thought and we prayed about how God might want to minister to our people, we were drawn to John 17. It's at the end of what's often called his farewell discourse. This is a prayer from Jesus, often called the high priestly prayer. And it's where we're going to spend the month of April on Sunday mornings, Lord willing, together. This morning, we're going to read John 17, 1 through 5. These magnificent, hope-filled words from Jesus that teach us so much about the nature and the essence of our life in him. So if you have your Bible... Let's open it, John 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 together, and then we'll study. It says, and pay attention, for this is the word of the Lord. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. 
And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. This starts out by saying, when Jesus had spoken these words, this prayer is the culmination of Jesus' time in the upper room with his disciples where they observed the Passover feast. This time is, if you read, you can go back starting in John 13. It's somber, it's cryptic, and it is strange. When the group arrived in that large room, with everything that had been arranged for them, there would normally have been a servant there to wash their feet from the day's travels. Instead, Jesus, their teacher, disrobes, goes, pours water into a bowl, and he begins to do that job of the servant. The disciples find it embarrassing and demeaning, humiliating. They're humiliated because they look and they say, Jesus, what are you doing humiliating yourself? And Peter, as usual, the disciple who just doesn't know what to do or what to say, so he starts saying something, first objects to Jesus washing his feet. And then when Jesus says, unless you allow me to do this for you, you can have no part with me, Then Peter asks, he says, I'll I'll take a bath. I'll take my whole body being washed then. And Jesus said, it's not about being cleaned on the outside. This is about me doing the lowest thing in the lowest way possible to set you an example that you should get ready to do for others if you're going to come after me, if you're going to serve me. And then after Jesus shows them, gives them a a lesson by example, he begins to teach them. He says they must remain close to him even when he's not going to be there. And the disciples do begin to sense even somewhat of a different tone from Jesus. He gives them some hope. He promises that a helper is going to come when he leaves. It's the Holy Spirit. He says that the world will hate them, but he's overcome the world, so they shouldn't have fear. And as you read the chapters before this, you can almost just feel the tension as the disciples look at one another, kind of saying, Jesus is always saying weird stuff. We're kind of used to that. But this is a whole new level. It's a whole new level of what in the world is going on right now. And at the end of it, they think they understand. They even say, ah, well, now you're speaking plainly as if finally we understand you, Jesus. But as we'll quickly see, as the gospel goes on, it's not until after the resurrection that what he's saying now in the upper room begins to even make a little bit of sense to them. So it's after this teaching that Jesus begins to pray. I mentioned earlier this is called the high priestly prayer of Jesus often, and that's a fine title, 
but really it might, if it wasn't taken elsewhere, be good to just call this the Lord's Prayer. This is one of the longest sections we have from Jesus of praying. He normally reserved his prayers for time when he was alone, so nobody knew what he said. We have a prayer called the Lord's Prayer, but really it's just more like a model. It's kind of a quick outline for prayer. You can see a lot of that incorporated here into John 17, but this is the true prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ. He prays for himself and the glory of the Father. He prays for the church, prays for his disciples, prays for unity in the body, and he prays for us. This is one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. So let's read carefully. Let's not miss anything. Verse 1 says, After these words, he lifted, lifted up his eyes to heaven. That was a typical posture of prayer in Jesus' day, to lift up your eyes as if to address God. Think about the opposite. In Luke 18, there's an example of two people who pray. One Pharisee who stands and prays boldly because he thinks that his outward actions have made him righteous. And then there's a tax collector who knows he's a sinner, can barely address God. And it says he doesn't look up to heaven, but he can't even do that. He looks down. And so that's how he prayed. I want you to see three little mini sections in John 17, 1 to 5. First, verse 1, Jesus prays that he might be glorified, but it's a different kind of glory. We're going to see the path for him to glory, a different kind of path, the path that leads to glory. Secondly, in verses 2 and 3, we're going to see the knowledge that leads to life. And finally, verses 4 and 5, we're going to see the plan that must be fulfilled. So first, the path that leads to glory. That's the first thing that Jesus prays for is his glory. But it's not glory like we think of glory. It's not notoriety or, or fame or, or influence. Jesus is praying that he would be glorified so that God would be glorified. And the path that leads to glory for Jesus is the path that will take him to the cross. From everything else in the world, this is an upside-down path to anything resembling what we would call glory. The Roman cross that Jesus is headed toward was a symbol of shame, unlike the world has not, not uh, like the world has rarely seen. A symbol of shame like the world has rarely seen. People were hung on it, not just as a means of putting them to death, but it was absolutely meant to humiliate them. They were often naked, there for everybody to see as a spectacle. And the death was intentionally painful and slow. So how does this kind of humiliating death glorify God? And why is Jesus asking for it? Now, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he'll say, not my will, but your will be done. He'll ask for the cup to be taken from him if possible. Not that he thinks it will be, but just he's expressing that emotion. But why now is Jesus asking for this kind of shame and humiliation? He asks for it 
Because in the eternal plan of God, the cross is the perfect means to display both the mercy and the justice of our God. As Jesus willingly and obediently subjects himself to the torture, to the shame of the cross, it's in that that we see the grotesqueness and the consequences and the punishment necessary for our sin. They become visible in a very real way. But also there, we see that as the Son of God bears them on himself, he bears them for us so that we don't have to. That's where the mercy of God is seen. That Jesus would go there, that he would hang there, and that he would die there in our place is mercy beyond measure. This is the path for Jesus to glory, and he's asking for it for us, for me, and for you. He's asking for the cross because he knows that in the cross his Father is glorified. And that's what Jesus came to do to glorify the Father. Over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus asks for the glory of his Father. He says he has not come to do his will, but to do the Father's will. He says that he has come so that people would know the Father. Jesus here is showing us the essence of salvation. To be saved. We talk about that as Christians. I am saved to be redeemed. To be one who has been brought out of death into life by God is not simply to reduce your sinfulness. It's not even, and listen well to this church, it's not even to gain everlasting life. The essence of salvation is to glorify God and the essence of sin is to withhold the glory from God. The essence of salvation is to glorify God. And then inversely, the essence of sin is to withhold it from him, withhold glory from him. common mistake is to see our sin as what you do, what we do, to lie, greed, to covet, speak angrily or harshly. Those are sins to be sure, but they are only a manifestation of the core of sin. We become angry because we want glory and we're not getting it. We're refusing in that moment to glorify God. We want it for ourselves and we're angry that we haven't gotten it. We lie or we omit parts of the truth because we're not comfortable with handing our circumstances over to God and entrusting Him to lead and to do what He will. And so we try to manipulate people for our own advantage. The path that leads to glory for Jesus was through the cross because in it, 
the Father is glorified. And in the same way, our lives are meant for the glory of God. But instead of humiliating death, we receive everlasting life. That's the trade that takes place on the cross. Jesus gets shame. You get everlasting life. Jesus gets rejected by God so that you can be accepted by him. Can you even fathom the depth of the mercy of God in that kind of a trade? The upside down glory that Jesus was pursuing. So let's keep going. Verses 2 and 3. Now there's a knowledge here that leads to life. And how does that life come? So look at verses 2 and 3 in your Bible. Eternal life comes from the Father through Jesus being applied by the Holy Spirit. Verse 2 says that Jesus, God the Son incarnate, gives it to all, all, key word there, whom the Father has given him. The plan of salvation, folks, is stunningly revealed here. In verses 4 and 5, We'll get a a small glimpse of it a little bit more even from the perspective of Jesus. But in these verses, 2 and 3, let's just take in the wonder of being held securely by the promise that not one who the Father will save is not secured. Your salvation for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ is held securely in him. It's bought at the cross. It's guaranteed by the resurrection. All whom God purposes to save, he will through the death and rising again of Jesus Christ. All whom God the Father will save, the Son gives everlasting life to. Now here the connection between verses 1 and 2 are seen. It's, it's actually verse 3 that draws out that connection. Eternal life comes through the cross. But how is it perceived? How is eternal life perceived? Earlier I said that the essence of salvation was glorifying God. So what is the essence of coming to possess eternal life? What's the essence of coming to possess eternal life? If the essence of salvation is glorifying God, then what is the essence of possessing that kind of life? Verse 3 answers the question. This is eternal life that they know the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So the essence of eternal life is knowing the only true God. Knowledge of God is a theme woven throughout the scriptures. The prophet Hosea said God's people are destroyed, destroyed when they have no functional knowledge of him. Another one of the prophets, Habakkuk, 
it says that the greatest blessing comes when the earth is so filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. It's like waters covering the sea. Obviously, there is not an inch of ocean that is not covered by water. And that's when God's glory will be most known when the earth is filled with knowledge of him. In Jeremiah God talks about a new covenant, looks forward to a new covenant, this one placed inside on the hearts of each person. He says that from the least to the greatest, when that covenant comes, God's people will know him. So just like in verse 1, where the essence of salvation is not just less sin, or even the absence of sin, but it's full-throated, whole body, whole life experience of seeking the glory of God. Here in verse 3, the essence of eternal life is not just having life that goes on and on forever. It is a personal, intimate knowledge, not just of having eternal life, but a personal, intimate knowledge of knowing the eternal one. That's the promise of eternal life. Not that you would just go on without dying, but that you live forever in a certain kind of life. In life, with, in fellow, in life in fellowship, in relationship with the one true God. The one who is glory. The one who is love. The one who fully and finally satisfies and we come to know God by coming to know Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus came, so that we may know God. John 1.18 says that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus came so that he may be made known. It's the knowledge that leads to everlasting life. May the earth, may your life, may mine, may our church be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. And then in verses 4 and 5, the plan that must be fulfilled. These are perhaps the most remarkable verses at the beginning of this prayer as Jesus gives us just a little glimpse, a little bit into, of a look into what happened in the council of the Godhead before the world was created. And so just look now, wonder at this now. In the distant past, the God who is both one and three persons, divine mystery, divine dance, that God foreknowing sin and desiring out of love to redeem decided that at the precise right moment in history, God the Son would enter into the world as the man Jesus Christ. In order to do that, or in doing that, he would set aside certain rights and privileges. That's what it says in Philippians 2. And he would endure death on a cross so that when he was raised to new life, he could be the firstborn among many new creations and bring the world back into subjection under the rule, the rightful reign of God. 
Now, we could spend just, just hours unpacking the enormity of these verses, talking about what must it have been like? How does this interplay? How is the Father, Son, and Spirit all one? But how does each person of the Trinity contribute to the salvation of men? It says even angels long to look into these things in 1 Peter. We could do that. Talk about doctrine, we could debate theology. But I just want to spend a couple of minutes together not doing those things great as they are and fun as they are. Just want to take a couple of minutes on one implication, on one conclusion that I think we need in these days and for us. And that is that this shows us, verses 4 and 5 of John 17, how much God cares for us. It shows us to the degree that he went for you and for me. I fear that this even sounds trite because we hear it sometimes. And sometimes the things that we hear we tend to tune out a little bit. They tend to lose their meaning because we put them on a coffee cup or because we put them on a t-shirt. So we should make sure that we understand the full and just try to grasp at least a little bit of what's happening here. It is absolutely true that God has a plan for you and for me. And that, and that plan will not be thwarted. He is wise enough. We just get this from these few verses right here, these couple of verses. Wise enough to set that plan in place from long before the world was created, therefore long before sin entered the world. And if he similarly is powerful enough to work it out, despite the best efforts of you and me and other men to screw it up, and even in his weakest moments, if Jesus never wavered from his mission to glorify the Father, and if Satan never won a victory against Jesus, then God can and God will accomplish his plan. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.32, if part of the foreknown plan of God was to work in and work through the death of his son, then we can have every assurance that he will not withhold the rest of the good things that he has promised for us from us. He won't withhold them. And we see that clearly if he's been willing to work through the death of his son, then clearly he's willing to do whatever it takes to fulfill his promises to us. And we can be sure of this because if God believed in his plan that the best way was to put it in the hands of his own son, then any difficulty or any temptation or any earthly power will not stand in his way of doing everything that he set out to do. God put the plan of salvation in the hands of Jesus and said, Jesus, your glory, the way that we will work this out is for you to go to the cross. 
And if Jesus was willing to say, God, glorify me, and by that I mean take me to the cross, take me to that shame, take me to that death for these people whom you have given me so that none, so that all may be saved, so that all may join me in glorifying you, so that all may know the knowledge and have the knowledge of your glory, then we can be sure that he will continue to add to us all good things. Folks, we are in the hands of God. And there is no better, more secure or stable place to be. There is nowhere else we should desire to rest. These are uncertain days dot, 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 to you and to me. But they are not uncertain to our God. Who long before he created the world could foreknow the sin, who long before he foreknew the sin could craft the perfect solution, and who long before he knew where sin would be, what sin would be, how it would be redeemed, and what he would do forever in the future knew about these days. And he holds us in his hands. He neither sleeps nor slumbers. In other words, he doesn't lay down on us. Folks, he's not laid down on us. I can't say it enough. And I need to remind myself of this too. He is with us. He is for us. If he has done all of those things, how can we not have every assurance that he will surely add to us all good things? And so let's as a church grow in our knowledge of the glory of God. Let's not waste days not reading his word. Let's not waste our days not coming before him in prayer and saying, God, align my heart to your will. Let's not waste days to serve those around us in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, there is a way to live and that way to live is to give yourself for the glory of God and I want to give myself for the glory of this great God. I want to serve the people around me. I want to be free from sin to serve and to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ to join him in glorifying his Father. Jesus prayed that for himself, and he prayed it for us. If there's anything that we could ever want to do, it would be to fulfill the prayer and to learn from him to grow in the things that Jesus is praying for. If you want to know how to pray, look at how Jesus prayed. If you want to know how to live, look at how Jesus lived. He asked for the cross because in it we have life. Let's glorify him. Let's grow in our knowledge of him that we may glorify him. And let's be confident that we are in his hands. His plan will be fulfilled. And be sure that if he has done all this for us, how will he not also give to us all good things? Let's pray together. God, may we rest 
in the truth that you made a plan, you carried out and accomplished a plan, and now you are fulfilling your plan in our lives. May we not waste these days for your glory and that your name might be made famous over all the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.